after idols and began to worship the gods of the nations around them. And because of this, God judged them, just as he said he would. God judged him and promised to tear the kingdom from him in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 11. However, for the sake of David, he said that he would not do it in his days, but in his son's days. And that he also wouldn't do it completely, but that he would leave one tribe, the tribe of Judah, to the line of David. So Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, becomes king, and through a series of events that we don't have time to get into, God tears the kingdom from Rehoboam, and it becomes two nations. The northern kingdom of Israel, uh, led first by Jeroboam, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, led by Rehoboam. The northern kingdom, Israel, was plagued by instability. They had one evil king after another. One evil dynasty would be overthrown, and immediately would be followed by another dynasty more evil than the one that was overthrown. And it plagued them. Until finally, they reached the place where God, in his judgment and in the fulfillment of his promises, sent the Assyrian army, and the northern tribes were taken captive. They were taken captive to Syria, and Assyria scattered and never returned. The southern kingdom, however, remained under one dynasty. It remained under the line of David. They had some decent kings. They had a few really good ones. And they had some terrible ones as well. The evil of the kings in Judah as well continued to get worse until we read in Second Chronicles chapter 36, starting in verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against the people, until there was no remedy. What a terrifying statement that is. There's no remedy for the people. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged, he gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And so for 70 years, they would be captive in a foreign land. And the land would receive its Sabbath rest. Then after 70 years, we read in verse 22 of 2 Chronicles 36. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. So 70 years passes, and now once again they can go back. In fact, there's this decree from Cyrus, go, whoever wants to, go up. So there's many that return to Jerusalem to join the small remnant that are there, because there were also some that had, had been left. But there were also some who did not go. They stayed in Babylon. They chose to stay where they had been captive. Remember, this has been 70 years. A lot has changed in 70 years. Most of the people originally taken captive would be dead by now. So most of those that are returning are people that were actually born and raised in captivity in Babylon, or those that would have been very young when they were taken captive. And so their memories even of Jerusalem would be very few. And so, there were many who stayed. Again, this is just a brief overview, but that brings us to where we're at in Nehemiah, because Nehemiah is one of those who up until this point had not gone up. He stayed in Babylon. He stayed where they had been taken captive. And so go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to read the chapter. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power, and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy 
in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah, verse 1, we see is in Persia, in a city called Susa, which is in modern-day Iran. It's close to the, actually the southeastern border of Iraq. Susa had become one of the royal cities for Persia. This is where the Persian kings would reside during the winter months, which is why we see again here in verse 1 that this is the month Kislev. Kislev would be uh, our November-December. Okay, so it's right in the wintertime, and so they are in the winter palace. Nehemiah, we read at the end of verse 11, was a cupbearer to the king. It was the job of the cupbearer to taste the king's wine and food as a test for poison. This was a distinguished position. might not seem like it, but it was. It was a distinguished position. It was an office of trust. As one commentator pointed out, tasting the king's wine and food, the cupbearer stood between the king and death. Not just anyone gets placed in a position of such great importance to a nation which tells us a little bit about what kind of man Nehemiah was. This was a man of strong character and great wisdom. It also tells us how God put Nehemiah in a position, as Mordecai says to Esther, for such a time as this. As the cupbearer, Nehemiah would have been one of the king's closest advisors. I mean, you're trusting him with, with your life, so he would be one of his closest advisors. He would have been a man that the king trusted implicitly. And this was God's man for a critical hour. Now, in verse 2, Hanani, one of his brothers, either an actual brother or most likely a, a kinsman, the words are the same, but Hanani, he comes to Susa along with some men that have come from Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah right away asks them about how things are going in Jerusalem. So just because Nehemiah wasn't among the first to return to Jerusalem doesn't mean he didn't care or wasn't very much concerned about what was taking place in Jerusalem. In fact, I think it's clear in this passage that Nehemiah had a great longing to see Jerusalem flourishing once again. To be able to see visibly the blessing and fulfillment of the promises of God to his people. I believe it gripped Nehemiah. He loved the people of God. And so as soon as he sees these brothers from Judah, he grabs them right away. How are things going? What's the condition in Jerusalem? How are those that escaped? How, how are those that survived the exile and return? How is it going there? Now before we move on, I must ask, do you love the people of God? Are you gripped by that same type of intense desire to see the promise and blessing of God being poured out upon his people? Do you long to see Christ being formed within your brothers and sisters in this room? Do you pray for one another? And what about the church universal? Do you long to see the church down the street growing in the knowledge and fear of the Lord? When you hear of persecution around the world, does it impact you? 
Does it impact you? Are you able to hear about it and, and move along with your day without thinking twice? When you hear about the church across town that's splitting apart, does it break your heart that the body of Christ is hurting? Or do you enjoy the gossip that comes out of it? Where are our hearts in that? J.C. Ryle, in his classic work called Holiness, he wrote this. If we love a person, we like his friends. We are favorably inclined to them even before we know them. We are drawn to them by the common tie of common love to one and the same person. When we meet them, we do not feel that we are altogether strangers. There is a bond of union between us. They love the person that we love, and that alone is an introduction. Well, it is just so between the true Christian and Christ. The true Christian regards all Christ's friends as his friends, members of the same body, children of the same family, soldiers in the same army, travelers to the same home. And when he meets them, he feels as if he had long known them. He is more at home with them in a few minutes than he is with many worldly people after an acquaintance of several years. And what is the secret of all this? It is simply affection to the same Savior and love to the same Lord. You ever had that? You meet a stranger, you find out they're a Christian, and not only are they a Christian, this is, this is someone that's on fire for the Lord, and immediately there's a bond there that is so close and so tight and so beautiful. Because the same Spirit dwelling within them is dwelling within me, and there's this, this instant uniting one another. And that's Nehemiah's heart here as he's asking about the condition of the people in Jerusalem. These are, aren't just some people. These are the people of God. His people. And so they respond in verse 3. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. All is not well in Jerusalem. The people are in great trouble. The people are experiencing great shame. The walls broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire. We read earlier in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 about the original destroying of the gates by fire and the, the breaking down of the wall. And that in, what's happening here includes that, but it's not just that. There's been new trouble as well. The people that are there are facing great opposition. There had been attempts made to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. Ezra talks about it. And it was promptly crushed by the people there. So the news isn't simply about what happened 70 years past, but this is continual trouble that's happening now. And so because of this, they are in great trouble and shame. Other translations read that they're in great distress, reproach. They are facing affliction and misery. And they are objects of contempt and scorn and derision from the people around them. 
But why is the fact that the walls are broken down and the gates burned such a cause for trouble, shame, humiliation? Few things come to mind. First, and very practically, they're unable to protect themselves. Anyone can come in and out of the city or anything. In fact, fascinating story about when the northern kingdom's taken captive and the Assyrians bring other people in to live there. And one of the things that plagued the people is they were being torn apart by various animals. Uh, it had been overrun with beasts, it said. And so here you have, there's, there's no walls. Any, uh, any, uh, any enemy can come in. Any raiding band, any armor, uh, any army any beast or predator could come in and do whatever it wants. But what about you? What about the walls in your own life? You know, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28 says that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Again, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Is that you? Are you experiencing great trouble because of your lack of self-control? What's it like when we have broken down walls? What's it like when we have breaches in our life that need to be shored up? Well, for one, it feels like we're unable to keep the enemy out of our lives. You know, it feels like you just get caught in almost every single temptation. It feels like the enemy's been given free reign to harass. It's like just one thing after another. You get through one temptation, you get hit with another. You go through one trial, you get hit through another. Just over and over and over and over again. Have you ever felt that way? I know I have. And yes, God may allow the enemy to come against us and test us to strengthen our faith and many other things. But it's also very likely that we just have sin in our lives that we're not turning away from. Unrepentant sin. Bosom sins. Sins sins that we love. Sins that we don't want to give up. Therefore, you become like a city without walls. And so, yes, it's always going to feel like you're under a spiritual attack until you repent. Take that sin to Christ and mortify it. William Gurnall, in his book, The Christian for Complete Armor, the, the Christian Incomplete Armor, he wrote, Take your sin, your bosom sin, the sin that lies closest to your heart, and trample it underneath your feet. Those sins that, that there's that part of you, you just you want to cling to it. You must trample it underneath your feet. Mortify it. Kill that sin. Be violent in your fight against sin. Strive for holiness without which no man will see the Lord. As the scripture says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Second reason that this brings out such great trouble and shame is because it's a constant reminder to the people and to the people around them of their sin 
and God's judgment. Every day, as they look out upon the city, as they walk down the street, as they go about their business, as they run their errands and do their chores, there was a reminder before them of what they once were and what they are now. There was a reminder for them of God's judgment against them. And the people around them knew it too. In fact, if you want, you can turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 7. In Second Chronicles 7, we know the very famous verse, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray. Right? But in verse 19, we read a very different promise. Verse 19. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you and this house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped and served them. Therefore he has brought all this disaster upon them. And so we see there a promise promise of judgment. And part of that judgment includes becoming a byword to the pagan nations around them so that even the pagan nations around them will look upon what's ha- happened here and they'll see that happened because they forsook their God. Even the pagans would see it. And so the shame that they are feeling with the walls broken down and the gates destroyed is part of God's judgment. I wonder, do you have any daily reminders of your sin? Do you have consequences that perhaps you see or feel every day? Perhaps the the ache of a wayward child reminds you all the ways that you could have done things different as a parent. Perhaps the the condition of your health is a result of past sinful lifestyle. You think back on that failed marriage, the broken family. You see that person in public, right, that you had some conflict with and and you, you handled it sinfully. You don't even want to look at each other, even though perhaps you were once very close. You know, we easily become ashamed as we look at our past or, or we have things in our past we want to keep hidden. And it comes to light. We become ashamed when people judge, speak down to us. We become ashamed when we have to ask for help in ways that perhaps we never thought that we would. third reason why this brings about such trouble and shame is because the task to fix it also seems too big. 
such a big task? It seems impossible. I mean, how are we ever going to get out of this? How could we ever rebuild? Have you ever had anything in your life that the thought of repairing and restoring seemed like way too big of a task? Impossible even? Do you remember the despair that that brings? I mean, it just seems utterly hopeless. I mean, this is not good news that Nehemiah is getting here. This is the worst it could be. And so we see Nehemiah's response in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's response is quite emotional here. As soon as he heard it, he he sat down. It was too much to take in. Have you ever heard news so terrible that it sent you to the ground? You ever had that? Your legs give way. You have no choice. You Have you ever received news so tragic you have no strength left in you? He sat down and he wept. He wept. This great man, this great leader is on the ground weeping. You know, crying and weeping in our culture is often viewed as a sign of weakness. Right? You need to just man up. What's wrong with you? And indeed, there are times where someone needs to hear, man up, what's wrong with you? That's not the case here. This is no sign of weakness in Nehemiah. No, this is a sign of Nehemiah's relationship with the Lord. His closeness and intimacy with the heart of God. I remember Leonard Ravenhill saying, you cannot walk with God and not have tears. And you see it over and over. You see it from Jeremiah. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. We see it all throughout the Psalms. You see it from Jesus, not only in Gethsemane, right before he's arrested, but also in Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. He, he sees the city of Jerusalem and he weeps over it. He weeps over their ignorance and the hardness of their hearts. We see tears from Paul, who in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, he reminds the Ephesian elders of his teaching and warnings to them. And he says, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He writes to the Philippian church in chapter 3 and verse 18, and he warns them, many For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of Christ. If you get close to God's heart, you will have tears. Nehemiah is being broken over the condition of God's people. This is God's heart for his people, and God is breaking Nehemiah. 
He has a work he's going to call him to do, but first, he must be broken. Dr. Alan Redpath used to say, before God uses a man greatly, he must first hurt him deeply. Before God uses a man greatly, he must first hurt him deeply. There's an anguish that comes along with closeness to Christ. Anguish for the lost. Anguish for the believer who's caught in sin. Anguish over the worldliness of many Christians. Anguish to see the people of God growing in the knowledge and love of God. And so Nehemiah hears of the condition of the people and it breaks him. And it causes him to mourn for days. This was no flash of emotion that came upon him and then left just as quickly. You know, perhaps you've heard a, a very eloquent missionary or someone speak and they, they, they tell a moving story about the people they serve and it's, it's really good. It's stirring up your emotions. You can be very moved by it. But it seems like as quickly as the burden came, the burden left. You go to lunch after and you forget all about it. I remember Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, he spoke at a conference in London in the mid-1800s. And they wanted to take a special offering for the mission. But Hudson Taylor refused it. He did not want a special offering. The conference leaders protested. Uh, one man, especially, was very vocal about it, but Hudson Taylor would not give in. Why won't you take it, he said. This is, this is a way to get money that you need. This is a great opportunity for you. But the reason was this. He did not want to give the people the opportunity to appease their consciences by giving a few dollars without being truly broken over what they had heard. He wanted the people to truly feel the weight of what was said without the opportunity for a superficial relief. And what was interesting about this is the man who was most vocally against not taking an offering, he went home that night and he couldn't sleep. He was burdened all night long. Burdened over the Chinese and the work of the China in the mission. And he spent the whole night in prayer. He didn't sleep a wink. He spent the whole night in prayer for China and the work going on there. Desperate the next morning to get up and find Hudson Taylor. And, and in God's providence, he couldn't find him that day. So it left him just a total wreck that whole next day as well. As he was deeply burdened by what he had heard. And so finally he sought out Hudson Taylor as soon as he could, and he gave him a hundred times what he had planned to give and became one of the best friends of the China Inland Mission for the rest of his days. There was much more that came out of that as well, but I'll leave it at that. So again, with Nehemiah, this is no burst of emotion that comes and then it goes. This is the burden of God. And he doesn't know what to do, but he begins to fast and to pray. 
And this fasting of Nehemiah's is no attempt to curry favor with God. This is the result of deep pain and anguish. When you're in this kind of emotional state, food becomes a loathsome thing. I don't want food right now. You can't eat. When you're fasting, your food is prayer and the Word of God. There's no other way to get relief for your soul than to unburden it before God in prayer. James says in James chapter 5, verse 13, Is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. And so he fasts and prays. And notice, it says he prays before the God of heaven. Now while people do join him in prayer later in the chapter, this was done before the God of heaven. This was done to be seen by God and God alone. As Robert Murray McShane said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. So when was the last time you were on your knees before the Lord? I'm not just talking about posture of your body, but the posture of your heart. When was the last time you were truly brought low before the Lord? When was the last time that you were desperate for Him? So desperate that you laid yourself bare before Him. God, I need you. Desperate for His presence. Who you are before God on your knees, that you are, and nothing more. Now, we don't have time to look at the prayer in any kind of death, but I want to point out a couple of things. Notice, he begins by praising and proclaiming who God is. Chapter 1 and verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he follows that reminder of God's steadfast love and covenant keeping with confession of sin. Verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. He then reminds God of his promises and he calls upon him to keep them. God wants to be reminded of his promises. Verse 8. Remember the word that your command that remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, "If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And then lastly, his supplication, verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants, you see now people have joined him in this prayer, who delight to fear your name 
and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Again, we don't know how or exactly when, but others began to join Nehemiah in prayer, and a plan was formed. And so, in the month of Nisan, chapter 2, verse 1, Nehemiah goes before the king to make his request. Now, Nisan is mid-March to mid-April. So remember, he first hears the news of the state of Jerusalem in Kislev, November, December. It is now March, April. Nehemiah has spent the last four months in mourning and prayer and fasting. Four months he's carrying this burden. And so he comes before the king, and the burden he's been carrying has affected his body. And it's changed his appearance. So much so that the king notices right away, and the king says, in chapter 2, verse 2, Why is your face sad? Why do you look this way? You're not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah becomes afraid. You're not allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. It's punishable by death. But Nehemiah can't hold it back. He must speak. Chapter 2, verse 3. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So the king grants his request. And Nehemiah leaves for Jerusalem, full of supplies and support. And once there, though, he faces tons of opposition. It's been one problem after another as they're getting the work done. Until finally, in chapter 6, verse 15, turn over to chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. In 52 days, the work was completed. An amazing feat with all the opposition that they faced. But notice this. Mark this. Don't forget this. Four months of prayer and fasting and weeping went into two months of work. Four months of prayer went into two months of work. The battle was won on his knees before they ever got there. Do not underestimate the importance of prayer. As Martin Luther is famously quoted as saying after being asked about his plans for the next day, he said, work. Work early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the importance of the power and the privilege of your brokenness 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege of prayer. That we can truly come before you, the one who breathed out the stars, and that you hear us, that you have promised to respond to us, that you have promised to act by our prayers. What an amazing gift. Lord, conform us, transform us into the image of Christ. And Lord, make us a praying people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.